Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. My guest today is David Fastowski, and he's here to talk about dinosaurs. And I also asked my guest, why did he start studying dinosaurs? Was it childhood nostalgia or was it something more fascinating about them? Well, really, um, I was always interested in dinosaurs. And when I was a little boy, I read a book by a guy named Roy Chapman Andrews. And this book, I have two copies of it now. I wish I had my original. It's It's a horrible book. It was written in 1953, and it's got almost everything we don't think is correct about dinosaurs in it. But it described some pretty extraordinary experiences by him in Mongolia and uh, collecting. And I was just fascinated. I thought it was terrific. Um, He also did one on whales uh, and he was describing how much fun it is to shoot them (laughs) with a cannon from a whaling boat. That didn't didn't get me there. (laughs) (laughs) But dinosaurs. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I just stayed with it. Um, Like, like a lot of people it kind of was at the back of my mind, but where I went to school and what I did, it, it just seemed so far from what I could, from, from real life, quote unquote. And then as I was graduating from college, um, literally as I was graduating from college, somebody came who had heard of the department of paleontology at Berkeley and as department of paleontology. So um, I actually started in biochemistry at the university of Illinois. And then I told my advisor that I was really only kidding. I wanted to be a paleontologist and uh, incredibly he not only let me go, but supported me, wrote me a nice letter, I guess, because I got in. So, Have you seen that guy um, who, be- who didn't believe in dinosaurs? I sent you the link yesterday, didn't you? Yeah, you did, yeah. Well, it's yeah. hilarious. I mean, how he always managed to debunk everything he says. Oh, yeah, he was he was way... I mean, you you could construct much better arguments than his. They were He was so far off, and um, Trevor did a fine job of smashing him. I might have done it slightly differently, but, but basically... It was it was it was actually somewhat pathetic to listen to it. So, you know. <laughs> so, uh, so, but before we begin, well, I want to ask why do why do some people don't believe dinosaurs actually existed? Um, I suppose that's first of all because they've never really connected with them like up close and personal. And I also think there's some biblical issues associated with dinosaurs. We we say that the last dinosaur lived sixty six point one million years ago, and. Um, the Bible says the earth is 6,000 years old. And uh, if you take that literally, then there's a, there's a discordance. So, you know, we have to resolve that and we try to do it politely, but we have to resolve it. So, yeah. Yeah. And so I think that's where it comes from. And then I think there are people that just get on the web and they're trolls and they'll just say anything that um, is quote unquote, um, I don't know, provocative, but I didn't find that provocative. I just found it stupid. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so for anyone wondering what we're talking about, we're talking about, uh, I don't remember, Victor Valle, I think it was his, he was called, on, who was on Joe Rogan a few years ago, and he watched a right. video of someone who didn't think dinosaurs was real, and he basically burnt everything he said. 
the the guy that that um that the paleontologist on there actually knew the name and had said that he was also had published stuff on flat earth and you know i mean where, where do you begin? I can do a whole episode on conspiracy theories, but that's not what we're going to talk about today, unfortunately. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. But, uh, yeah, we, well, so of course, I'm going to ask Is the Jurassic Park movie accurate when it comes to portray of dinosaurs? Oh, uh, you know, I think for, for its time, I think dinosaur paleontology is changing really fast, like really fast. I get um, on the order of I would say six to seven, maybe 10 papers a week about dinosaur paleontology. A new species is named every three weeks. Every three weeks, a new species. They're not always that different from the old species, but the, but some of them are really quite dramatically different. So this thing is changing very fast. So Jurassic Park is what, 1993, 1994? Mm-hmm. And um just things have changed a lot. Like all those dinosaurs are running around butt naked, you know, and the fact of the matter is uh, most of them would have had feathers in some capacity or other. So that's one of the things, but overall um, it really represented so much. It's so much closer to our view now than um, people were um, thinking along the line. People were thinking about maybe uh, uh, at this point, it would be 40, 40 to 50 years ago. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, how old is Jurassic Park? It's 30 years ago. So this would be maybe 15 years more old, older than Jurassic Park. And people were thinking a lot, what, what they, what they said in Jurassic Park would have been seen as just absurd. And it, it's not only absurd, it's, it's, I mean, it's probably mostly correct, I would say with, yeah, you know, with a license, allowing for movie licenses and screwed up all the, most of the dinosaurs are kind of, um, you know, they're famous examples. I, I'm sure you've heard them, but, you know, Dilophosaurus is too too small. Velociraptor is too big. Velociraptor doesn't look anything like Velociraptor. Dilophosaurus looks a little bit like itself. The spitter thing with this, the poison, that's all, there's no evidence for that. The flaring, like Draco, which is a lizard, uh, there's no evidence for that. So stuff like that, you know, but um, the overall, I mean, the the movie was, the movie was more modern than it was out of date. Let's put it that way, I would say. And actually, I, I remember reading that I think it was National Geographic, the magazine, a long time ago, that it was talking about technology that made it possible to revive extinct animals and even dinosaurs. Is is that a possibility, or are, is the DNA so old that it's too? And is it a good idea to do this? Okay, well, I, I'll let. Um... I'll let all the philosophers in Jurassic Park talk about whether it's a good idea or not. <laughs> I'm not going there. Um, but I would say um, we, we, we know a lot more because of that movie largely and the book that went with it. We know a lot more about, um, about the technology. So DNA degrades after a million years. So I told you the most recent dinosaur is 66.1 other than birds is, is 66.1 million years Um lived 66.1 million years ago and so realistically the chances of finding dna fossilized or preserved for that length of time is are non-existent the second problem with with the movie in that respect is that um amber turns out to be um what's the word i want i guess you could call it porous it's not a great great word to describe but it's not tight which means that material can get in and material can can leave uh, chemicals can get in and chemicals can leave which means that um you're not it's not 
it it doesn't hold that um that dna sacrosanct in there and un untouched at all so so that's the second problem with that but the part that they don't tell you um that turns out to be just crazy is that a lot and then you, your question will be how much and the answer is i don't know but a lot of things that the ancestors of modern birds had, which means dinosaurs, um, non-avian, non-bird dinosaurs, those things, a lot of the genes that produce the structures in those animals are still there. And my favorite example is an experiment from um, 1980s, forever ago. I mean, like it was, it was so far ahead of its time. And what they did is they essentially used, uh, they essentially induced enamel to form in chick um, what's called epithelium, surface tissue. Now, epithelium produces teeth in mammals and epithelium produces teeth in reptiles. Um, but it does not produce teeth in birds because no living bird has teeth. But here these guys were able to get that epithelium from a chick, from a, a bird, to generate teeth. And how they did it is a long story and very sort of disgusting, but but it's fine. Um, how they did it was, was so what they did w- was they got this, this, this chick epithelium to produce teeth. And what that told them was that the genes that produce teeth in birds are not gone, they're turned off. So if they're turned off, that means you could possibly turn them back on and recreate some structures that were present in non-avian dinosaurs, you could recreate them today. Am, am I making sense to you? Following yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that's a crazy experiment. But that, and there have been other experiments like that since then that have sort of shown that. So I think Jack Horner, who um, who's pretty well known paleontologist, he has a, 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 um, a rather large operation at Montana State University, and I believe he tried to rebuild or recreate or get existing genes to make the tail birds have lost their tails they have the little piga style the little pope's nose or parson's nose that's at the back of a turkey for example just a fleshy little thing but dinosaurs of course have long tails and tails is the primitive condition so the question is are those genes to produce a tail still present in birds but they're turned off the way the tooth genes were are and the answer is uh, it's been a little bit more complicated he wrote a book about it um whose title of course i can't think of right now but anyway he wrote a book about it and um and he wasn't completely successful but i don't think he's given up trying because the implication is that the banks of genes that produce things like teeth and tails and things that make non-avian dinosaurs non-bird dinosaurs different from modern birds or bird dinosaurs um, those things are some of those genes are still there yeah. and that's something that they never thought of in jurassic park but boy is that open up a world of whoa what could you make <laughs> yeah exactly um it's uh i think i remember reading as well that that there's a lot of fossils found in the south american continent so why do you have you found someone in dinosaurs in that specific area was it the weather there was it, i mean the, the, the continent was diff, totally different of course 60 million years ago but what was it why do you have you found so many in that specific specific continents um there's a couple of reasons why so if you had approached if we had um this is part of the changes in paleontology i was talking about if we 
let's say this was 1945, or I'll go better than that, 1965, and you, we were having this interview, and you said to me, well, um, what's going on in South America? And I would say, well, they've got some fossils down there, but mostly mammals, not, not, not that much. Um, and then we would talk about some of those mammals, and they'd be kind of cool. Some of them, there's some good stories associated with them, but it'd be like, oh, yeah, okay. Um, and so what was the difference? The difference is uh, um, South American paleontologists have really gotten into it in a big way and started looking for them. And the place where they're mainly found, they're, of course, found all over South America, but the, the place where they're mainly found are the Pampas. And the reason why they're found in the Argentinian Pampas is because, first of all, it's not super built up. And secondly, it's not, um, it's not, uh, it's a relatively stable modern environment, but it exposes sediments of the right age. Um, there aren't, um, there are plants, but it's not completely overgrown. So for example, if you were in a, um, if you were in a modern rainforest, that'd be a place where you wouldn't expect to find fossils. Yeah. But if you're in a modern desert, if you had the right rocks of the right age and the, everything was, was correct, then you, would, um, you, could, you could expect to find fossils. And so other places that, that have been really productive are places like um, Northern China and Mongolia. And that's, that's largely a question of how much, um, what, the, what the modern climate is like and how much hu human destruction of, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the sediments has been. You know, if you build a city over it, it's hard to find fossils. Um, although there was a very famous fossil found in, in an Edinburgh parking lot, actually just below an Edinburgh parking lot. But so, um, so it's really a question of people digging around and looking. Um, would Norway be a great place to find fossils? I'd love to go find fossils. I have fossils no idea. Honestly, this is not my, uh, my area. I wish but, I'm, but I'm about to tell you, I'm about to answer the question for you. The answer is no, because Norway is heavily forested and heavy forestation um, between the plants um, destroying the soil and not destroying it, but destroying the fossils that would be in the soil. The plants would be taking material out of the soil to grow. Mm. Uh, and even if they were there, it'd be very hard to collect large fossils went in the middle of a forest because the trees are relatively tightly packed. So in general, mm, no, not, not, not great. Um, so you can look for other things in, in Norway, but yeah. not for fossils for that reason. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, of course. So, yeah. So, and then the United States is another example. We had, we have a huge collection and continue to produce fossils regularly in the American West. Why is that? One, there are people looking for it. Two, the climate is right and the exposures are right. That's three. So, um, and the only reason why they aren't like, the only reason why it's not, just doesn't continue to be amazing, although it sort of does, is that people have been picking at it since uh, the late 1800s. There have been paleontologists out there collecting fossils since the late 1800s, even early since the middle 1800s. And so, well, middle to late 1800s. So the point is there have been expeditions, they've been collecting fossils and the place is still producing. So, in that respect, South America, they're just, I mean, they're just beginning that I expect they're going to be incredible things come out. of. There already are incredible things come out of South America and China. Same story. Things just are unbelievable that are coming out of China now. So, yeah. So do you think there's still species we haven't found yet that we still oh, have yet to oh, discover? God, yes. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, there was a. Uh, there was a group, there were a couple of dinosaurs um, 
that were um, found that were, they were kind of weird. No one knew quite what to do with them. They were found, um, I think in the, in the early 2000s, maybe in, in China. Um, but, they, you know, well, we'll put them with this group. Well, we'll put them, nobody quite knew. And then um, in 2016, maybe 2015, um, a complete version of one of these things was found. And this animal was so different from any dinosaur that any of us ever knew. I mean, so different. And that was 2016. Now a second version, a different, it's actually a different genus of the thing, of this group of animals. They're called Scansoriopterygii. And um, what they are is a, an arboreal or a tree living theropod, which is like T-Rex is a theropod, but these things aren't obviously like T-Rex because they lived in trees. And they're small and they had bat wings. No dinosaur had bat wings. No other flying animal has bat wings except bats. And yet here they are. So now we've got bat wings occurring in two different, two different completely separate groups of animals, birds and, and excuse me, um, bats and these Scansoriopterygians. Science, I mean, science fiction writer, writers don't have a field trip with this one. Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, it just, uh, they aren't big. So, yeah. um, but, but they're just, I mean, they're com- complete. And do they have feathers? Yeah, they have feathers. Of course they're a dinosaur. So they're feathered bat winged arboreal tree living tree dwelling things. Crazy, unexpected. And there's always, there's, there's always, I mean, there, there's always stuff like that. I can't, so we haven't come close. We haven't come anywhere near even understanding what a what a conventional ecosystem looks like, I think sometimes there could be so much we haven't seen. Yeah. So how did we come across the first the f- very first dinosaurs? Like, was it a pure coincidence? What what did what did what's the first reactions to finding these huge bones? Well, they weren't the hugest ones. weren't so huge. The the the, the story is always told that the there's a guy named Gideon Mantell. He was a country doctor. He was living in England. And his wife, Mary Mantell, she used to go on his on his his little, you know, little house calls, go to different people's houses. And so one day while they drive their carriage up to somebody's house and um, they uh, Gideon goes in and his wife is basically sitting there twiddling her thumb. So she goes for a little walk and she. There's some people who would dispute this version of the story, but the, the basic outlines are correct. So did Mary find it or did Gideon find it? That's kind of the argument. But anyway, the bottom line is she's walking along and she finds, I'm telling this, the ver, her, this version of the story, that she's walking along and she finds this tooth. And this tooth looks exactly like a modern iguana tooth, except the tooth is oh, huge. You know, like a modern iguana tooth is about like this. And this thing is about like that. Double size. Oh, more than double size. Yeah, yeah. I would say triple or quadruple size. And so she doesn't know what it is. She thinks, well, that's pretty cool. So she collects it. And Gideon recognizes it from his anatomy class as as an an iguana tooth. But he never saw an iguana that big. And so um, anyway, so what they do is uh, he sends it to a guy in France named Cuvier. Cuvier is the world's, at that time, the world's um, most famous anatomist. Cuvier looks at it, and, and, and Cuvier was amazing, don't mistake me. Cuvier looks at it and goes, oh, well, that's, um, that's a hippopotamus. That's a mammal. You know, don't, don't you be worrying about that. Um, 
And so Mantel's a little bit put off because he, he knows it's not that, but he can't figure out what it is. And he gets into fossil collecting um, in a big way. Um, he starts looking for them. He goes to quarries and he pays workmen and workmen to tell them if, he, if they find something. And he starts finding big bones, not just teeth. And it goes, it goes kind of crazy after that. Um, it goes so crazy, in fact, that Gideon's wife ends up divorcing him. Um, so their story ends, um, their story ends kind of sadly. Um, it really does. He ends up having a train accident and um, damaging his spine and he can, and he dies relatively young and somewhat deformed. But in the meantime, he's gotten this, he's put together this spectacular collection. He's published some papers and some of these papers are clearly recognizing that there is this large group of extinct reptiles. He recognizes them as reptiles. However, the guy who who actually named Dinosauria um, is a guy named Sir Richard Owen. And Sir Richard Owen is another really interesting, interesting character. Boy, he was a piece of work. Um, but the bottom line, we won't get into Sir Richard Owen's personality, which he wasn't the nicest guy on earth, but um, we'll just say that he was able, he, he took all these large reptiles that he had, that he had, that had been brought to him or that he had seen, and he grouped them together as dinosaurs. And, and there were originally, um, let's see, I think I've got, there were three original members of Dinosauria, um, an ankylosaur, an iguanodon, which is what that tooth belonged to that that animal, and then also um, a theropod or a, a carnivorous dinosaur, um, which he which was called Megalosaurus. So, so how did he manage to put the bones together? Was 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 it difficult to one to find first of all find the bones, and then know that was it basic bone structure like in like in animals? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, you look. At, I know. You could in the early days they they could you you could. The early days, you know, they're seeing the most obvious bones. Nowadays, you have to be a little bit more skilled because a lot of areas have been picked clean. But, you know, in the early days, you actually see something that's clearly a bone. It's uh, It's got a, like if it's a long bone, it's got a shaft and it's got a head on either side. And it's got condyles, which are the things that that um, connect with the bone next to it um, and and articulate or move like this. And so uh, it's clearly a bone. If you cut the thing in half, you'll see there's a um, sort of a what's called lamellar uh, bone on the outside uh, that you see, just like if you cut into a, a chicken bone or something, and then you cut on the inside, you see what's called cancellous bone matter. It's it's um, it's all fossilized. It's it's none of its original bone. It's all rock now, but it's still it's like a perfect um, a perfect cast except it's not a cast it's actually the bone has been replaced by minerals and so you're looking at a rock where none or very little of the original none or very little of the original bone material is is still present um because it's been replaced and the older did the take, bone did it take time to put them together and they're finding out the structure i can imagine it take quite a lot while it took a lot of time and that was one of the complaints that mary mantell had that gideon was spending more time on that than he was spending on his his profession or on her so yeah yeah he was he was the first uh paleontologist but not the last that went not so over over his field so how did they find out where to look for these dinosaurs like okay. what what's how did they find find the locations like did we believe that they were this area in this area or, or in this area well how they found out and how i find out is two different things how they found out was um a lot of guesswork but essentially they were looking for rocks that would be considered sedimentary 
and not say igneous or metamorphic rocks that are igneous are blown out of a volcano uh, rocks that are metamorphic are actually changed by temperature and pressure so when you find the fossils in um so when you when you find fossils in sedimentary rocks those rocks haven't been as uh, roughly treated by earth time and processes as the sedimentary as the as the um, as the metamorphic and the igneous rocks have so um, that's so they kind of did that intuitively um, in the early days. Someone like me, I look for um, I, I, we have pretty good control over most deposits. So I look for rocks that are sedimentary, which is what we've just been saying. I look for rocks that are the right time because dinosaurs are known to have lived in a, a particular interval of time. When I say dinosaurs, I mean non-avian dinosaurs, non-bird dinosaurs. They live from about 230 plus or minus million years ago to 66.1 million years ago. So I look for rocks that are in that time range. And then I want the rocks to be terrestrial because dinosaurs are not marine animals. And that's something that confuses a lot of people. Dinosaurs are non-marine animals. So the rocks are terrestrial, they're the right age and they're sedimentary. And there's a good chance of finding something and that's where you go. And that's what I've done with, with, with friends of mine when we've gone on collecting expeditions, you go somewhere completely different using those criteria as a starting point. Is it exciting to go to a new field and find new bones? Is it, is it as exciting every time you go to a new field? Uh, well, yes and no. I, I, I tend to go to places, for myself, I, I go to places that are either completely new and then we we try to figure out what's going on or we go to to a to an older place that's been looked at, but we're revisiting it after many years. And so, meanwhile, new stuff might have weathered out. There'd be new material on the surface that wasn't there before. So, either way, it's interesting. You, you never know what you're going to find, and you never know what the environment that that the the bones were were preserved in is going to be. And that's a different question. I've spent a lot of time thinking about that question as well. So. But how about sea animals? How I'm just probably a stupid animal, stupid question, but like how how do you find the find the sea dinosaurs dinosaurs living in the sea? Well, there are no this, dinosaurs. Do we dive sea. under or? Well, I want to I want to start out. There are no marine dinosaurs, so no sea dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. There are animals that are not dinosaurs, and 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 I'm sure you know some things called mosasaurs. They're gigantic. I think it was someone was referring to yeah. Yeah, or ichthyosaurs that are um, essentially, um, well, they're they're like dolphins, but they're reptilian. Um, I always had a soft spot for them. They're really very cool. So how do you find those? The answer is you go to sedimentary rocks, but you're looking in marine sedimentary rocks. And the most famous example of someone who's done that was Mary Anning in the 1800s who collected fossils um, and sold them because they were incredibly poor, but she collected them on the coast. Um, but it wasn't that she was on the coast because those were marine fossils. It was that because the rocks happened to be on the coast now. That's a that's just a, a coincidence that she was near the coast. Yeah, and the sea level changed as well. Right? Sea level, continents move around, things change. Yeah. One of the things that's, that 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 is really important for marine marine fossils, um, especially in the United States, but but elsewhere too, is in the past sea level has been higher than it is now, and so. When sea level was higher, that means the continents were flooded more than they are now. They were flooded with marine waters. We call those epicontinental or epiric seas. And so you can 
on the modern continent, you can find deposits from from marine deposits um, that were from a sea that was there previously that's no longer there now. And the person who first discovered that was actually Leonardo da Vinci, no less, who noticed that there were seashells up in the mountains, the up in the Apennines of Italy. How could there be seashells on the tops of mountains? And uh, somebody actually wrote a book called Seashell on the Mountaintop describing that whole process. But, and you got to hand it to Leonardo. He even got his fingers into paleontology. You know, that's pretty good. So, yeah, clever guy. And how do you, how do you manage to determine this is a predator, this is a prey, this is a plant eater? How, how were we able to, was it just work or was it like the way they were structured when you placed them together? Oh, it's in, yeah, it's in the bone structure. It's, um, it's definitely in the bone structure and in the tooth structure. So um, the, the familiar example is, ma- I'll start with the familiar example is mammals. And that one, the teeth tell you everything because mammals chew. And because mammals chew, the teeth are designed to do, to work with whatever the substance is that mammals chew. So you'd never confuse a horse tooth for a human tooth. You never confuse a human tooth for a... Um, Oh, whale tooth, for example. These all these are all different teeth. And so that tells you a lot about what the animal did for a living. But then it goes further than that. Um, reptiles, dinosaurs, tend not to have such specialized teeth, although there are several groups that have extremely specialized teeth, and they tend not to chew. So um, what they do is they swallow their food, they, they bite it off and they swallow it, and then the gizzard um, they grind it with rocks inside the gizzard that they, you probably know, chicken will pick up little pieces of rock. And that's so that the, those rocks can actually be used in the gizzard to grind up the food, the crop and the gizzard. So um, mammals chewing is a really, really unusual thing. So given that fact, the teeth and reptiles are not quite as diagnostic. But for example, if you look at a, um, a carnivorous dinosaur, the teeth are they're 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 compressed side to side they're serrated on the edges of them and they're curved we call it recurved they're actually curved back and if you think about it and the this is the last sort of key that's really um compelling if you think about it the jaw joint is exactly at the same level as the tooth row which means when that animal brings that jaw and closes it like this those teeth with those serrations and the flattened and the curvature move right past each other like that that's like a scissors. That's really different from an animal that's going to um, grind grind material before it sends it back. And so if you look at, for example, a duck-billed dinosaur, which is a really ex- extreme example, the teeth are, um, the teeth form a flat surface, kind of a grinding surface. And they, they none of that shearing. Instead, the, the jaw is brought like this. So I'll all at the same in the same place like that, whereas the other is like that. And that pushing down, that grinding is a completely different motion. And that's not a motion that you would want to use if you're slicing meat, but it's a motion you'd want to use if you're grinding uh, plant matter. So that's what, and then the, the, the um, and the reason why the teeth move like that in herbivorous in herbivorous dinosaurs is because the jaw joint is actually set lower than the tooth row whereas in carnivorous animals the jaw joint is at the same level as the tooth row and so it goes like this so that's what allows the jaw to do this so um 
Then there's a bunch of other things too. For example, um, herbivorous uh, animals all tend to have smaller smaller heads relative to their uh, their bodies. Um, that has to do with um, what the mouth is being used for. The mouth is not an active part of subduing a prey, so you can have a smaller head. Tend to have longer necks, not not always, but tend to have longer necks. There's a bunch of things. So there there's a suite of sort of general characters that you can, that clearly distinguish herbivores from um, carnivores. One of which, only one of which are, is the structure of the teeth. So why, why did Tyrannosaurus Rex have so tiny arms? Is there a reason? How you find out the reason why? Well, you know, I'm going to ask you a question. Is there a reason why there are mosquitoes? Um, I mean, That's things right. things yeah. occur because they occur. Now, here's an animal that, um, first of all, I got to I got to say this: T. Rex is an animal that has baffled paleontologists since the day it was discovered, and the reason why that is is because there is no there is no animal on Earth that anybody knows that's like T. Rex, except for T. Rex and a couple of its good special close uh, relatives. So, what you're looking at essentially is a very, very, very large animal. Um, what? Um, 15 meters, maybe, maybe a little less, 13 meters, I think is huge, you know, 45 feet. Um, and it's got this massive head. The head is about two meters in, in, in this length. It's kind of an obscure animal in a way. It is a crazy animal. Um, and it's, and, and because it's so big, it's kind of built like a tank rather than like a gazelle, you know? Um, but, but T-Rex, you have to conclude that the arms are not, at least I conclude, I've always concluded, and people I've talked to have also concluded, the arms really, it might do something with these arms because they're, they're very, they're, they're two fingers on each hand um, and they're, they're, they're tipped with powerful claws and the, the forearm and the, the upper arm are very, very robust, the bones. They're, they're not weak at all. Um, they're, they're, so they're doing something. But as far as what, um, as far as the standard model is, well, the animal can't reach, it can't reach its mouth with its hands. Mm. That's always, a, that's impressive. I mean, it can't feed itself with its hands. Mm. But the hands, for example, could be used to um, tear meat apart like that. Um, but clearly this animal is doing most of its killing with its feet and with its head. And once you sort of, disp- once you sort of get into the um, evolutionarily, once you get into the business of using your head to do most of your killing, then what are your arms for? They're not so important anymore. They're, they're not subduing prey or anything. You're, you're doing it with your head. And, and this, if you think about it, the size of this thing is so big that why would, why would you, the head is huge enough to subdue most prey. Why would you want long arms on top of that? They more almost like get in the way. The, the system works very well. This big animal moving forward, it's, um, someone described him as a land shark. Now, I think that's an excellent, um, excellent analogy, not because, um, because a shark kills perfectly well by moving into stuff with its mouth. And we don't think that's strange at all. We think a shark comes up and does what it has to do. Yeah. I think T-Rex must have come up and done what it had to do the same way. And then the arms become largely irrelevant. It's sort of our models that, that well, arms have to have... This, this this function no they don't um if you saw um 
a shark with arms, well, why would it have those? You know, they'd be stupid. They'd be superfluous. Well, I think it's the same way with T-Rex. Hmm. So, okay, let's go to the asteroid. When it hit, what, what, is the, in, do you, what is the impact of the asteroid and how quick, uh, quickly, quickly after the, the asteroid hit the, hit the Earth does, does the dinosaurs go extinct? Okay. Um, so, first of all, your, in, your question about the impact of the asteroid was actually a very clever question because there's two impacts of the asteroid. One is the one that killed, that caused the, um, the extinction, the Cretaceous Paleogene extinction, including some dinosaurs. And the other is the impact that it had on the field of ge- geosciences, which was absolutely revolutionary. And I would think you would be more interested in the impact that it had on the dinosaurs. So I'll talk about that. But I want you to understand that there was an intellectual revolution that was driven by the um, the asteroid as well. Impact on the dinosaurs. Well, so here's this um, 10 kilometer chunk of rock smacking into um, the Yucatan Peninsula. And um, it's coming in it was thought for a long time that it was that it came in at a relatively low angle. Now there's some thinking that it, maybe the angle was a little steeper than was thought. But whether it came in at 20 degrees or 25 degrees, I think 26 degrees was the actual number that it was supposed to come in at, or whether it came in at 60 degrees, the fact of the matter is coming in at an angle. The angle is important. We actually know the direction that it came in from. It came in from the southeast. And the way we oh, know that... Know this. Pardon? How about, do we know the, the direction? Because it left, it left um, you, I, I would need to show you, some, I would need some props here to show, to show you this properly, but it left some rings. And these rings are well-preserved on one side, and they're not well-preserved on the other side. So when it's struck, the rings are, are, are responses of the crust to the energy that was released. But the other side, it blew out. Like it blew out, it blew out the rings and sent tons of stuff up and up and out, and so that's how we know that that impact shape. That's if it, it didn't just it didn't just drop plop down and leave rings like in a in a smooth lake or something. The rings are broken. The side that's broken tells you it came in from the other side. You follow the logic yeah. of this? Okay. So was now, it just and was it just one asteroid or was it some minor asteroids as well? No, it's I, thought know I don't know that someone terrorized that thing. It was not just one asteroid, it was money. No, it was one asteroid. It was one asteroid. And the evidence for this is pretty overwhelming and pretty conclusive at this point. Um, but the important point that you have to understand is once this thing, this thing is the size, this asteroid is 10 kilometers. So to Americans, kilometer, what's that, three inches? No, a kilometer is big. And 10 kilometers is about the size of Mount Everest. So this is a piece of rock about the size of Mount Everest hitting the Earth, okay? And so when it hits the Earth, it's going incredibly fast. And then um, it comes to a very abrupt halt. And when you have something going that incredibly fast and then coming to a very abrupt halt, there must be a tremendous amount of energy released. I mean, otherwise, where does the energy go? And so the release of the energy is is a subject of a lot of a lot of study. And I'm not going to go into the details of it right now, except to say that some of that energy released went right back, kicked what we call ejecta material from the Earth into the stratosphere literally into the stratosphere, where it then 
came back down to earth. When it came back down to earth, it heated up the atmosphere. And um, this has all been, <laughs> this has all been modeled pretty, pretty well. Um, so what we know about it um, on earth matches the models. So that's what, what I mean by we modeled it pretty well. But the heat energy that came back to the earth, uh, well, two things. The first thing is there's thought to have been an infrared radiation pulse at the impact. And then the second thing is when this stuff came back to earth, of course, it heated up like things coming back to earth, like spaceships that heat up when they come back to earth. And when it heated up, there was so much of it that it heated up the atmosphere. And it's thought that the atmosphere, that that the earth atmosphere um, got to about 500 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, and so I heard it. I, I'm going to steal this line from from a a well-known person who's been studying, um, Brian Toon, who's been studying this stuff. And what he says, if you want to know what it felt like after the, um, after the asteroid hit, maybe 24 hours later, um, turn your oven on to broil and then climb into it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's what, it, that's what it was like. And there's a great deal of evidence for this, actually, that, that the Earth was subjected to extraordinary temperatures. And these temperatures would have been global. Um, so a great deal of life was was shut down at that time, and it would have been shut down within um, a very short amount of time, 24 hours, 36 hours, something like that. What was very, like for those for those who survived the asteroid afterwards, finding meat, finding food? Was it was it horrible for horrible to them for to just breathe after the impact of the asteroid? Well, if you the the implication is if you were in the oven on broil, mm. um, the air would have been hot. And so you needed to find refugia. So organisms that could find refugia had a much better chance of surviving than organisms that couldn't. Most dinosaurs tend to be large and some dinosaurs tend to be really large. And so animals that were really large, That's were, the thing. they were sitting ducks. Yeah, they were sitting ducks. And, um, but some, we know that some, things that we would call birds survived um, because um, they did. And since birds are dinosaurs, you didn't, you didn't ask me about that, but they are. Um, we can talk about that if you wish. So but, did crocodiles do what you said? Did they find this, this place that hide them under the acid? Since uh, if I remember correctly, they are descent from, from, from did they survive the asteroid hit? They did. They absolutely survived the asteroids, but 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 I don't want you to say that birds are descended from dinosaurs. Mm. I want you to say that birds are dinosaurs. Mm. Humans have a lot of trouble with that. I'm going to just take a little digression here for a second. Humans have a lot of trouble with, with, with that idea that birds could be dinosaurs. But humans have no trouble when you say, are you a mammal? You know, sure, I'm a mammal. Okay, a bird is a dinosaur. Next. It's the exact same logic, and it's the exact same reasoning. A bird is no more a dinosaur than you are a mammal. So, or another way to phrase it, a bird is as much a dinosaur as you are a mammal. And most humans don't mind being mammals. So anyway, getting back to finding refugia. So things that tended to survive tended to be small and tended to be able to, um, either they were aquatic, they lived in aquatic food chains, um, which turn out to be detritus-based. And why we care about that, detritus is stuff that's just sloughed off from the land, um, rotten, rotting bits and just just organic matter that gets sloughed off from the land. But if you're in a detritus-based food chain, that means you're not dependent on 
fresh meat or fresh plants for your for your food, which means you're kind of protected. Um, and so it turns out that uh, detritus-based food chains, it's been shown that, detri- that, 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 that uh, organisms that survived seem to be participating in detritus-based food chains rather than ones that required fresh meat and fresh, um, fresh plant matter. So do you have an other species from that time that survived the, the asteroid? That... Yeah, how about mammals? Mm. Mammals appeared at the same time as dinosaurs. And throughout the, 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 the uh, non-avian dinosaurs' tenure on Earth, mammals were there the whole time. They weren't tigers and lions and stuff. They were kind of um, scrappy little, they looked like rodents. They weren't rodents. They were scrappy, small animals. Um, and supposedly they were nocturnal. I'm, I'm not quite as convinced of that as some people are, but the bottom line is they were very small and they were basically, if I were a dinosaur, I would so not take notice of them because they just weren't a big deal, literally. But on the other hand, um, when the dinosaurs, when the non-avian dinosaurs were extinct, then you have a essentially deserted ecospace. Um, and mammals radiated and, and evolved in, to fill that ecospace and did it relatively fast. But that that pattern of evolution is pretty well tracked at this point. We can see how they began to devol- evolve and how they began to become specialized. And the, so the earliest ones were omnivores. They ate, ate anything. They were just ate detritus like we talked about, very small detritivores, omnivores, eating anything they could get. And after a few million years, we start to see the appearance of the first specialized animals, carnivores, um, herbivores. And so they, they're literally radiating or spreading into ecological niches that were once occupied by dinosaurs. So, so I think we covered basic principles of uh, dinosaurs. And thank you so much for coming. Do you, before you go, do you have anything you wish to promote, any social media where people can find you, anything you wish me to put in the description of this episode? Well, n- not really. Um, no, I don't think so. I did write a book on dinosaurs. <laughs> and if anybody's interested, it's a, it's, we have a fourth edition coming out in June. So it's a brand new edition about to come out from Cambridge University Press. If you link me when it comes out, I can put it in the description. Oh, thank you. That's very thoughtful. No worries. I appreciate, your, I appreciate your interest in the subject and in, in your invitation. I'd like yes, to say that. Yes, fascinating. Very good. So uh, this has been that age 12. We are on YouTube and you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you can find podcasts. And uh, next Next episode, I believe, we're going to talk about Operation Valkyrie, the inside plot to kill Adolf Hitler. And uh, yeah, this has been That Age 12. You can find us on Instagram under the world that age 12. My name is Alan, and I'll see you next time. Thank you very much. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 